Welcome to the F Word Conversations on Faith. I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky, and it is good to be with you all. Good news, uh, this past week we are beginning to change as the CDC came out with new mask and social distancing guidelines, and I know for some of us we're cheering, others of us are a little nervous about this. It is, I will have to admit it is very weird for me to take my mask off, and I'm still getting used to it. And when I finally mustered up the courage to go into a place without my mask, I got yelled at this past week. I just want you all to know. It was a coffee shop, and the guy yelled at me to put my mask back on, and there was no sign on the door, nothing. And so I thought, I'm going to try it, and I got yelled at. And so I said, okay, okay, I put my mask on. It was in my back pocket. I was not trying to be... um, you know, I was not trying to be antagonistic by it. And I thought to myself, this is what we're going to have to deal with for a while, I think. Just this not really knowing uh, how people are going to react to whatever we choose to do. So it made me think, uh, can we all, can we have grace with one another, please, in this time? Just realizing that all of us, I think, or maybe not all of us, most of us, the vast majority of us, are really trying to do the best we can to figure this out, what it means for us, managing our own anxieties, the expectation of others, what others might think. I mean, all this kind of stuff. So uh, I thought, uh, let's have grace. Some people are going to continue to wear masks, even if technically they don't need to. That is okay. You know what? If you want to wear a mask, wear it. Some people need to wear a mask, and if that's you, do it. You know, don't be the person who pretends... Uh, If you take your mask off because you've been fully vaccinated, that's cool as well. Like, you don't have to feel bad. We're not all going to think differently of you. Just all this stuff that I know we're worried about. I just pray that we can have some grace with one another during this time. And if you haven't gotten your vaccine yet, this is a great reason, by the way, to do it. Because now you have more options. But it was just on my mind. But I want to tell really quickly two stories that kind of get into what I want to talk about and, and what I'm going to explore with my guest today, who, by the way, is a great guest, uh, Dr. John Anazu. He is a uh, the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University in St. Louis. And we are going to have a fascinating conversation. But two stories first. Uh, one happened when I was in college. When I was in college, I led Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It was a like a Bible study. I, I played football. It's how I got into it. I was a Christian. I, I did this. And I've shared this with people before, but I grew up kind of half Catholic and half United Methodist. So uh, in college, I went to a Catholic church, but I was leading this Bible study that was more evangelical Protestant Christians. And, you know, we, we did this, and I decided to have a night where I was going to invite my priest to come, and it was going to be like, ask a priest anything you want. Because I think a lot of Protestant Christians, if you're Catholic, you may not know this, a lot of Protestant Christians have all sorts of kind of warped views of what Catholicism is. And some even think it's not real Christianity. I mean, all this kind of weird stuff. So I thought, we're going to have a priest come and just explain, you know, why Catholics do certain things that Catholics do and, and how it makes sense, how it's rooted in Christian history. So anyway, it was the best attended event that we did. I mean, there were probably a hundred people at this thing asking the priest all sorts of questions. My priest from college was incredible. So he answered them with humor and insight and it was great. And the next week we had this little leadership team and and I was the 
president of it, but we had this leadership team and they called a special meeting and they confronted me because they thought that, you know, Matt, that was a really bad thing to do. We should never do that again. And I said, bad thing to do is like the most people we've had. Why was it bad? And they said, because you invited people to uh, explore all these other beliefs and we think it might lead them down a road of error. And I thought to myself, this is super weird that we can't even explore Catholicism without certain Christians being worried that just by exploring it, just by being around it, it was somehow going to lead people in error. And it, it sort of typifies to me this fear sometimes that Christians have about being around people with differing beliefs. In this case, it was an intra-Christian fight. I mean, it was like a family feud, but we have this about all sorts of things, that there's this sort of fear of difference, that it's somehow going to lead us down a road of error. And there's a there's a second story, and the second one happened when I was a pastor. I was pastor here at the gathering, in fact. So it was much more recently. I was asked to pray at like a, a an event. It was a civic event where there was going to be a lot of different kinds of people. They said, Matt, we would love for you to pray. We want you to come. We would love to start out with prayer. Can you pray just one thing? Can you not say Jesus? Like, don't talk about Jesus in your prayer because we're going to have people who don't believe in Jesus, maybe people of other faiths and, and that. And, and I, I get this. You know, there's a lot of settings at which we have a lot of people gathered. But it struck me as a really strange request. I mean, they know that I'm a Christian pastor, that I'm a, my, my whole job is to talk about Jesus and why I think, you know, Jesus is good news for people. And so to ask me to come and pray, but then to tell me in the same request, like, we want you, but we don't really want you. Or we want you to come and do something for us, but not really what you do. We want you to do what kind of we need done. And, and I, in the end, I told them, you know, I'd love to be there. I think you know that my spirit is one of openness toward other people. But most people know, like, I'm a Christian pastor, so I have to pray in the name of Jesus. That's sort of what I do. And uh, in the end, they actually relented and they, they let me pray. And it wasn't like, you know, a you know, five-minute prayer all about Jesus, but that's who I am. I'm a Christian pastor. And, um, and at the end of this, oddly enough, a Jewish person who was there in attendance wanted a copy of the prayer I prayed because they appreciated it. And I thought, like, here's something too. Uh, that example reminded me sometimes of those of us who want to be open to others sometimes have trouble claiming our own identity and what we believe because somehow we feel like it excludes others, but I don't think that's true either. And I was thinking about that, kind of how do we balance being open to other people, like truly open, I mean, not being scared of them like Christians often are, not... not uh, being afraid to be around them, to be truly open to other people, while at the same time not being afraid to believe what we believe, even if it is different or distinct from what other people believe, even if sometimes it might even offend or or maybe even rub up against what other people believe. So, so how, how can we be who we are as Christians and believe what we believe and, and believe it deeply while also being open to people who might think really different, differently from us? And so I think that's the central challenge of what it means to be Christians. And the two extremes to me are not good. It is not good to be afraid of difference and, and therefore to never want to be around it. I mean, that's not our call as Christians. And, and on the other hand, it is not good to just sort of do away with everything distinctive and to just say, oh, we're all basically the same, so I'm not really going to talk about 
you know, some of the distinct things that I believe. That's not good either. And so today, that's really what I want to explore um, with with our guest today. I'm going to talk about, you know, how, how is it that Christians can navigate living in a world with people who believe very different things? How can we claim who we are while also living in a diverse world? And along with that, kind of how do we deal with people that we just deeply disagree with? Those are some of the things that we're going to talk with our next guest about. Before we get to that, this is The F Word, Conversations on Faith. I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky, and you are listening to The Big 550 KTRS. Did Jesus perform miracles, or was he just a good guy? Is reincarnation real, or is it just the soul that's important? Is the Bible just another book? As long as I'm a good person, I can do what I want. As a general rule, people hold all sorts of beliefs that are at odds with historical Christianity, but don't understand why it matters and what's at stake. If you've ever wondered what to believe, or if what you believe is wrong, does that make you a heretic? Join us for worship at the gathering and find out. In this series, we explore misguided beliefs and how what we believe matters. Simply go to gatheringnow.org to learn more. At The Gathering, we believe that we as people were built for connection. And in this current season, it's never been more important to be and feel a part of something, no matter what you believe. So wherever you are, both mentally and physically, you can worship with us online or in person. Visit gatheringnow.org for more information on times and locations. And while there, we hope you'll spend some time and explore all The Gathering has to offer. Could your beliefs be construed as modern-day heresies? Perhaps. There is only one way to find out. Visit GatheringNow.org today, where everyone is welcome. So my guest today is Dr. John Inazu. He is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University Law School. He has written and contributed to several books, including Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. He wrote that one, and he contributed and co-authored Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. Uh, Dr. Anazu, welcome to the show. Matt, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, Now, before we get to what you do, because I I really want to explore this idea of pluralism, It, it, it seems particularly timely. Uh, in the wake of everything that we're going through. But I want to start with you, because I'd love to talk about who you are. Tell me about your upbringing and what role faith played in your early years. Sure. So my dad was in the Army, so I was a military brat, and we moved around every few years, lots of different places, mostly around the country. And, uh, you know, we always found a, a new church whenever we moved after every couple of years. And my mom made sure we were doing Sunday school and stuff. And so we were kind of plugged into church. I was confirmed uh, into the Presbyterian church in seventh grade and then got involved with Young Life uh, in high school and then InterVarsity in college. And so faith kind of sort of formed through those organizations as well. Yeah, so faith was part of your life from a young age. I started with that because as people will find out, I mean, faith plays a role in your scholarship now as well. But Mm -hmm. you you kind of got drawn to law and particularly you ended up in the relationship between law and religion, but what sort of made law the right Avenue for you to pursue? I mean, why law early on? <laughs> yeah. So kind of against my best laid plans or any kind of, you know, forethought on my part, I started off, I majored in engineering in college uh-huh. and uh, didn't really love it, but was there on an ROTC scholarship and, kind of that was part of the deal. So I finished out engineering. And then when I was finishing college, I just thought, what can I do that's not engineering? And I'd never 
met a lawyer, didn't have any lawyers in the family, but I thought law school is not engineering. So I went to law school sort of as an escape route from engineering uh, and then ended up liking law school, not being great at it, but, but, but enjoying it. And then when I went in, into legal practice, that was the first time I thought, oh, I, I get it now. I really do like the law. And, uh, and that's kind of what got me down the teaching path eventually, although the religion part of law came much later and almost by happenstance. It's, it's certainly connected to what I care about, but it wasn't, there was no plan that got me to law and religion. I kind of just fell into it, which is, which is really a gift at this point. <laughs> so, so that wasn't, I mean, had you thought about religion as an academic discipline when you were in school or were you really just sort of focused on other things at the time? You know, really, I mean, I, I didn't, I don't think I even took a religion class. Mm -hmm. uh, so all the engineering classes kind of ate up the schedule. I don't think I was thinking much about it. You know, I thought about being a pastor at different times, but it wasn't really fitting with the, with the military plan. And um, it was, it wasn't really until I was finishing up legal practice that I thought about going back and doing a PhD. And at that point I was thinking theology or something else. And I, I opted against theology because I'm not very good with languages and I didn't want to do all the Hebrew and Greek and yeah. everything and, so, and German. So I, um, I did political theory instead, which required no languages. And that was kind of, <laughs> kind of the, the, the right way to go for me. Well, that, that was the thing that was terrifying to me about seminary. I was a, I was a math major at Wash U. So going <laughs> to seminary was quite a turn for me. Right. Um, but I, I wanted to pick up on something. You, you said you were in ROTC in college. You mentioned the military. Uh, you you actually, before teaching, you actually worked in the Pentagon. Uh, is that right? I mean, was that, were you in, at the time, um, that wasn't a civilian job. You were in the military serving out your ROTC at the time? That's right. So I was an active duty officer at the Pentagon as a lawyer. And I, the reason I ask about this is because I don't know if you were thinking about pluralism at the time as an interest of yours, but certainly I would imagine working in the, a place like the Pentagon w would be a, a crash course in having to work with a lot of different kind of people with a lot of different ideas. Uh, did that time in the Pentagon sort of influence your interest in pluralism or how to work across differences? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I think at the time I was thinking about none of these ideas, but looking back, as you suggested, the experiences themselves were, were quite influential in terms of how I saw things. So a couple of examples come to mind. Uh, one, just you had to get anything done in that massive bureaucracy. You had to know how to work with people who saw the world differently than you. And, you know, everybody was kind of on the same team, except within that team, there were... <laughs> Navy and Air Force and Army folks and different offices with different agendas. And to get anything out of that building, you had to cooperate and figure out how to be a team player. So that was sort of, I think, instrumentally useful to some of these things. Um, the other, you know, maybe more serious point is just being around that much power and that much force and realizing that uh, this, this kind of stuff matters to people's lives and we should take seriously the the work we do, especially at those kinds of levels. Um, and that hit home, especially on 9-11. I, I was there mm. in the building the day the plane hit and, uh, and just seeing both the extreme consequences of when people give up on the idea of pluralism and just start killing each other. And also the tremendous fear that emanates from those kinds of experiences and that really um, 
cripples people for for years to come. And uh, and I think looking back at that, especially that 2001 era and the work I was doing and the experiences I was having, uh, just kind of, you know, put a put a premium on some of the stuff that I'm writing about today. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, some academics get, I guess, sort of uh, caricatured or criticized for you know, talking about things that don't connect to the real world. But there's no there's no better illustration or connection uh, of what happens when we abandon working across differences uh, than 9-11. And it almost immediately puts your work into uh, a category that's different. I mean, it's h- highly relevant. I want, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm just thinking about this when you were at the Pentagon, you talk, you've talked more recently about, and I think I heard you say this, you can tell me if I'm mischaracterizing you, but, but essentially, you know, we may not be able to bridge ideological divides, but we can bridge relational divides or, Mm um, we may have ideological differences that will never be resolved. And, but that doesn't mean we have to give up on relationship. And I imagine that's especially true or on display in something like politics or at a place like the Pentagon where people uh, are there presumably oftentimes because of their uh, committed ideological stances and yet have to form relationships with people very different. Right. Well, when you when you think about kind of really any part of D.C., when the political appointees come into uh, an, an agency or into a building, uh, they're there working for the president and they have a, a political agenda. And, th- and then they have to figure out how to work with the career civilians and many other people around them to get things done. And that requires uh, in both directions a kind of relationality. And I think the most effective versions are the ones that come from people who don't jump it right into the work that has to be done, but take the time to figure out uh, who the other person is. <laughs> go to the gym, have a meal, yeah. uh, go to a movie, uh, those kinds of things that form human relationships before you get to the, the hard sort of work. And, and I think the challenge, this is true in DC, but it's true in a lot of our lives and a lot of our jobs, we get so full of work and everything feels so urgent and significant that we forget to take the time to focus on the relationships that are going to sustain that work. Well, and I, I want to return to this point because it seems like this past year has made <clears throat> relationships even harder in a year where ideology has flared, you know, a presidential election right. cycle and everything else. And so we that was sort of exacerbated the gap between relationship and uh ideology but but i want to i want to kind of back up because i should probably stop you and have you define pluralism i've used the word a few times you have this is a a big focus of of your interest in writing but for those of people who aren't familiar with that term that idea just briefly what is pluralism and then if you would from there kind of how did you get into exploring it uh, from an academic uh standpoint yeah, sure. So you can think of pluralism in two basic ways. The first is a descriptive term, the fact of pluralism. And by that, we just mean the world is comprised of people with very different beliefs about a lot of things, including a lot of things that matter deeply. Same with our society. All of our beliefs are not just insignificant beliefs like your favorite color or my favorite baseball team, but they're about things of massive significance, like does God exist or what is a person? or what's the purpose of our country. And the fact that we disagree about those things and that our disagreements are not going away is is the fact of pluralism. Mm -hmm. And the second way to think about pluralism is 
what do you do in response to that fact of difference? So I can think of three possibilities. You do everything you can to withdraw from it. And that's ultimately not really a form of politics. That's isolation. You try to control it and suppress the other side. You try to win, win or take all approach. And that sometimes happens throughout human history, but it's not very pretty. And it's certainly not very Christian. Uh, or you try to do something in between that negotiates how to live with the fact of these differences as much as we can and as charitably as possible. And that's really pluralism in the second sense, a normative or political term, meaning what do you do in response to the, the fact of difference? Well, there's a response of pluralism that works for this uh, aspect of coexistence and mutuality. Uh, and then you, you, know, you asked, oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to ask. Yeah, so so you know, you said at the Pentagon you had experiences that demonstrated this, but at the time you weren't yet really thinking about it as as something to maybe pursue further. What what sort of led to that? I mean, was there an experience, you uh, a particular experience, or was it just a growing sense that hey, th this seems to matter, uh, and and I think I want to explore it. Yeah, you know, it was very particular and very sequential for me. So it started when I was finishing up legal practice, working on a case involving the First Amendment, looked down at the text and saw the right of the people peaceably to assemble. And I thought, the assembly clause in the First Amendment, I've practiced law for five years, have a JD, and I've never really thought about what the assembly clause is. What is this about? And I did a little research and it turned out that in the past 40 years, nobody had thought about the mm -hmm. assembly clause. The Supreme Court had said nothing about it. Legal scholars had said nothing about it. And so here's one of the five rights in the First Amendment, which everyone talks about, the First Amendment right being so important to our civil liberties, and nobody knew anything about assembly. So that that then, as I was heading off to graduate school, I thought, this is my dissertation project. <laughs> uh, and so I wrote that first book on the right of assembly, which turns out to be so much about uh, groups who are different and how you negotiate those differences legally, constitutionally, historically, how you give breathing space for dissent and for non-majoritarian beliefs, how uh, across the ideological spectrum, sometimes very liberal and sometimes very conservative groups benefit from that protection and that right, and why it's fundamental to the way that we organize society. And then the one other piece of that that, that really stood out to me is, it turns out that assembly is the only right in the First Amendment that requires more than one person to be exercised. So I can speak alone, I can petition alone, I can be the press alone. In some instances, I can practice religion alone, but I cannot assemble alone. And so there's this relational dimension to who we are as citizens and people that's right there in the First Amendment and becomes kind of an anchor for how we explore difference and pluralism and, and that sort of thing. So then that work on assembly really led pretty naturally to the broader consideration of pluralism. Yeah, and I, I have to believe that, I mean, something was on the the writers' minds when they inserted the word peaceably, right? I mean, they knew something was at stake in how we do this work. And, oh, and exactly, <laughs> right. No, so it, it's the only First Amendment right that's qualified in that yeah. way. And so the word peaceably matters, and it matters in, in two ways. One, because it's an actual constraint, so we need to figure out what it means, but also we need to figure out what it doesn't mean, right? So so it, it means that 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 there is actually some substance that has to go around that word. And that when we assemble or even when we protest or parade in public, that we have a lot of room to do that as long as it's peaceable. Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to jump ahead in our story, but it, I mean, you have to, the, the past year, two years has seen this work 
uh, all of a sudden become so relevant and so important that I have to imagine, um, I mean, you never knew that when you were exploring it or writing this in, as a dissertation, but the, the past couple of years, uh, it seems like we've talked about and had to, to wrestle with this idea of assembly um, more than any other time I can really remember, at least in my lifetime. Well, it's interesting. It's it's certainly been, I think, more steadily in the news. I mean, we can look back in the past few years and there have been pockets of attention. Think about Occupy Wall Street, for example, mm-hmm. that raises questions of assembly. There have been uh, around labor unions and abortion protests and those sorts of political activities, lots of uh, assemblies and, and challenges to assembly over the years. But I think you're right in a very sustained publicly aware sense exacerbated by all of us being at home and thinking about masks and these sort of things but there is this something particularly powerful in the moment about the expressive solidarity from actual assemblies uh, and then combined with uh, as you've hinted at the the charged political rhetoric our social media bubbles and how all of this just uh, brings I think uh, an intensity to thinking about these questions well I so you, you ended up writing a, a book, and I mentioned it in the intro, uh, Confident Pluralism, really about the relationship between believing what you believe deeply while also interacting and thriving alongside those who hold differing beliefs. And it, it, it seems to me that this, is, this idea is really important, that uh, maybe people too often believe that these two things are maybe mutually exclusive. In other words, to respect others' beliefs, you have to somehow downplay your own. Uh, Or to believe what you believe somehow excludes other people. Can you talk a little bit about that and and why we need to hold on to both of those things at the same time? Yeah, you know, so if I starting with the idea or the importance of actually naming your differences authentically and with particularity... Two examples come to mind. In the 1990s, uh, you might remember this as well, but interfaith efforts in the 90s were all about kind of the kumbaya moment, pretending that, you know, really we're all kind of doing the same sort of God thing and we all have similar values so we can come together and um, ignore our differences for the sake of unity. And that never really worked because I don't think most people engaged in those efforts really believe that. They thought, no, this stuff actually does matter. Like your God is quite different than the way I understand God and your practices are different. And, and so what it led to, I think, were very thin and short-lived relationships and commitments because people weren't actually being authentic. And I think when we can approach something like interfaith with more authenticity, we can we can define what our boundaries are more clearly so that we can be enabled to better name the common ground. And then we can really dig into what we have in common. Yes, we, we all care about poverty relief or whatever it is, or we all care about truthfulness. And we can name values that we share across our distinct practices and traditions. And then the other example that comes to mind of where this is sometimes downplayed is in, in higher ed in the university context, where we throw out these platitudes, uh, we care about justice, but we never actually talk about what justice is. And we assume everybody agrees on that term. And of course we don't. Uh, and, and until we actually wrestle with the particularity that leads to difference, we're doing one of two things. Either we're assuming agreement when it's not there, or sometimes even worse, we're suppressing difference because people don't feel as if they're able to challenge the assumed status quo. And, and neither of those really leads us to 
long-term stability and, and real friendship and trust. Um, now, having said that, once you name those differences, you do have to move in a spirit of charity across differences. And so if you, if you name the differences to such a degree that the other side becomes dehumanized or evil or not worth uh, your time, uh, then, then that leads to very bad things too. So we, there's gotta be a balance in the middle that both holds to particularity, but also looks at the other and looks at difference with a, a lens of charity. And here I think Christians who know that uh, other people are created in the image of God have a pretty good starting point to, to do both yeah. of those. Well, and you know, I think I, the reason I asked that question, I, I was curious about it because I've experienced this in just a really practical ways throughout my ministry. I've had examples of this. I, I mean, on, on the one hand, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've been asked to pray at a function but please don't mention Jesus. But they're asking a Christian pastor, so it's a it's a bizarre sort of request to me that uh, I know this is who you are. Can you come do a version of who you are, but not be who you are? It's just it, it's a it's a little mind bending to to think about. And then on the flip side, I remember I, I, the first time I ever went to a Jewish worship service, and the friend that I went with said, "Hey, I'm really sorry. This is a very different tradition." And I said. Well, that's what I want. I, I'm going there because I want to experience um, Judaism in the context of worship. I don't want it to be sort of watered down or withdrawn just because I'm there. I'm actually, I, I want to experience what, what you hold uh, deeply and, and dearly. So it just reminds me of those kinds of experiences and in the, in the way that that sort of just glossing over falls short on, on both ends. Yeah, I think those are both great examples. You know, in the first example, it also calls to mind, I think, the danger of being asked to lose the particularity is often that on the other side of the question is a desire to use you instrumentally for some other purpose than the purpose uh, to which you've been called. <laughs> and so the, probably the starkest example of this is in, in, the, in the realm of civil religion, where the government or the nation tries to baptize your faith or my faith for the sake of the country. And so we get this um, very loose sense of religion or faith or God bless America, mm -hmm. but it's not for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the nation. And, and boy, if we're not seeing some of that play out, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the current moment, um, it's, 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 it's striking, it's dangerous, and it, it's dangerous in part because it so easily creeps into our lives. Yeah, well, that's well said. I mean, you, and, and you've touched on this, but you, you sort of argue for the need to form distinctive communities within diverse pluralistic environments. And, and, and I, that, that struck me as important that we start not with trying to learn about others, but maybe strengthening and nurturing our own particular beliefs and an understanding of those beliefs before or as the, I guess, the the tools we need to begin to connect with others. Can you talk about the importance of kind of starting first with diving deeply into what you believe? Yeah, you know, may, and maybe the predicate question even to that one is, what kind of institution are we talking about? So there are some institutions that by their purpose and nature are supposed to be themselves pluralistic. That's how I understand Washington University at its best, that it's trying to 
allow for a plurality of ideas and beliefs and communities to flourish within it. There are others like your church, for example, which are which are particularized, and you're not actually welcoming all kinds of pluralism. You have some distinct beliefs that are going to set boundaries and that are going to say to you and to everybody else, this is what it means to be part of our community, and this is what it means not to be part of it. And uh, you know, back to Washington University, you, if you're going to be enrolled there, then you're a student, and you're not just a uh, an entertainer. So we have roles that are set by boundaries and purpose, and that becomes very important to name. And then within individual institutions that are that are particularistic and not pluralistic, that's when we 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 get with our people, whoever they are, and in the safety of trusted relationships, we work out our ideas and our beliefs and our values, and we ask hard questions that we might not ask in public. Uh, and that that element of trust, which is so important, yeah. helps us to grow. Now, if we just if we always just stay in those safe spaces, they become bubbles and echo chambers that don't actually eventually allow us to work across difference. But if we never allow time to be there, then we're just flopping around in the wind without ever being rooted in anything. So I think that the balance is to figure out how do I attend to my own need for uh, my community my own development, my own rest on the one hand, and then also be engaged generously and charitably with others who are not like me so that I can better understand them. Yeah, that's really helpful. And you said something that, uh, that reminded me, you know, you said Washington university when it's at its best, I mean, this is kind of institution that, that, um, exists for the sake of uh, a sharing of all sorts of different ideas, pluralism, and I'm not talking about Washington University specifically, but, you know, this past year, maybe the past two years, we've seen academic institutions around the country seems like kind of struggle with this idea as as they sort of allow certain people to come and speak, but maybe begin censoring other kinds of speech that don't line up with either the stated goals or the majority of the people there. Is that something you've talked about or explored? Because it just, it, it came to my mind as you were talking about universities, and it, it seems that that's been in the news a little bit uh, as of late, the past couple of years, as universities even wrestle with, uh, what are the boundaries of the kind of ideas that w- we allow to be shared here? Yeah, you know, it's definitely been in the news. It's been on my mind. Uh, I've even experienced a little bit about it. My my friend Ibu Patel and I were protested off a of campus uh, last year in a bizarre kind of challenge to a talk on religious pluralism. Um, so there, there wait, are these- Wait, wait, why did they- bo- what, was, <laughs> what was your transgression? In- well, in our case, we were probably more of a secondary boycott to them. So they were mad at the administration. The administration brought us in and then they, they kicked us off uh, <laughs> in order to stick one to the administration. But it was pretty, you know, it was pretty funny in the moment for me because I, I was telling the audience, you know, I, I am usually the person- defending and explaining protests but when it's a protest against me it feels a little <laughs> different so um uh but uh you know so i, I do i have I've felt some of this in a very firsthand way and there have been some other examples as well um i tend to think that a lot of these incidents are exacerbated by a lack of leadership uh and and, and, and i mean an institutional leadership that understands what the purpose of the institution is. So if you can name the purpose of the institution, you can then pretty quickly name the kinds of things, discussions, speakers that are going to be acceptable and the ones that are not. But if you don't have that purpose 
explained pretty clearly on the front end, then people are going to fill in their own boundaries. And then you're going to get stuck down the line saying, why did you invite speaker so-and-so who clearly is outside the boundaries of what we believe? And if you've never had the discussion about mm. what we believe, then you're just fighting with each other in real time over an actual event or a speaker instead of working it out on the front end. So I, I'm somebody who tends to be pretty big tent uh, in, in a university whose purpose is to explore knowledge, ideas, and truth. I think you let you know a lot of people in. I also think there's a community responsibility to let in the kinds of speakers who are going to be engaged in serious inquiry and not just showboating. And, the, and you know these these instances are exacerbated when you know in addition to the lack of institutional leadership you have what is often kind of a student immaturity that wants to bring in the most provocative or the yeah. most famous speaker who in fact is uh, maybe going to get some headlines but is not going to help advance the kinds of conversations you want to be having in the university environment that seems like a helpful uh yeah helpful boundary that i hadn't considered um so i want to talk a little bit about finding common ground you know i think when a environment is particularly divisive people often just appeal to we need to find common ground and will you talk a little bit about common ground because while you value it in fact you and i were talking before uh, you value it you also bring a different perspective to that particular goal yeah you know i think um in one sense common ground should be a a modest aspiration, at least on the front end, uh, and, and some, and because I think it's low-hanging fruit that we often ignore. So, in the first instance, when I think about common ground with, say, a stranger, an individual person who I don't know, that's going to be most easily something pretty basic, like sharing a meal or getting to know about taking a walk, getting to know about the other person. It's it's rarely going to be meeting a stranger and jumping right into a really hard discussion about race or politics, yeah. right? So, hi, I'm John, let's talk about our deepest differences. That That's just not a very human way to go about engaging with other people. So part of common ground is slowing down and, and actually focusing on what activities or interests you do have in common, but then it means also acknowledging that you might disagree on a whole lot of things, including the kinds of things that prevent you from having even a shared understanding of the common good. So you might disagree remarkably on some important questions. And then it's a matter of continuing to return to this common ground or this modest unity that you can find and, and then sustaining it. So the other, the other kind of practical point I would make here is be sure to have not just the conversation, but a series of conversations in relationship with somebody. I, I've been at a lot of these one-off talks, right, or discussions or panels where it's, uh, you know, let's raise a hard issue and talk about it and feel good that we've had the conversation yeah, at yeah. the end of it. That rarely helps people change perspectives or form relationships. So I would say commit to somebody for a series of lunches or discussions and and let the hard questions that eventually surface be followed with additional conversations or, you know, even, you know, why don't you read this short piece and let's talk about it the next time instead of just assuming that you've named difference and that's going to be enough. Yeah. You got me thinking too. I mean, you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, um, while presumably social, you know, media, I guess it, maybe in one sense it can foster relationships. It, it seems like, 
a particularly difficult thing to do online. Has social media, especially in the context of a pandemic where you know we, we can't get together in the same way, do you think this has hurt our ability to find common ground because it sort of take, I mean, does it take away that critical relational component or even the ability to talk over time? I think how often people drop in on Twitter, I drop a comment, I'm on to the next thing. And uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a, such an important dynamic of what we're all wrestling with right now. Um, so in some sense, I want to say, it's not entirely new or unique to our context uh, in insofar as we've always had partisan media and echo chambers that have solidified and entrenched some of our differences and prevented relationships. I think, I think social media in particular poses a couple of unique problems, one of which you already hinted at, the asynchronous nature of it uh, prevents actual conversations and comments from, from building upon one another. And I think Twitter is a great example of this. Sometimes there are threads that evolve and sometimes there aren't, depending on who's checking in when, but you rarely get uh, the, the built conversations that are genuinely engaging and back and forth inquiry. It also, just by the nature of the platform and, and other social media platforms as well, encourages this performative, snarky, entertaining approach to engaging with people, which is usually not the best way to... Yeah press into deep ideas but then finally and this might be the most um well maybe a couple a couple things that are particularly striking and and challenging here one is just the intensity and the volume of all of it right so we don't when you and i were growing up we checked in on the news once or twice a day maybe and now it's just every few minutes we're getting updates or we're hearing what our friends think about certain updates and so there's this collective uh noise that that robs us of any kind of sustained quietness or peace around anything. And then on top of that, we've got very sophisticated algorithms that are that are working to get us the loudest and most controversial noise and and deepen our prior beliefs and make us more scared of people who don't agree with us. And we're just not going to beat the algorithms. They're so much more sophisticated than we are. (laughs) Which seems to me so important. In a sense, it's a manufactured conversation. I mean, you know, that we may not realize that. But, uh, well, I could, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on social media, but I want to kind of turn to faith for a little bit, particularly for Christians um, I think a lot of your work is intended for people of faith, or you speak to Christians. Do you think as followers of Jesus, we have sort of a unique mandate when it comes to pluralism and dealing with people that are different from us? Uh, absolutely. I mean, and I think, so first of all, it's clear from history and sociology and lots of other experiences that Christians are not uniquely able to engage in a pluralistic discourse. And in fact, in many instances, Christians have quite a bit to learn from non-Christians. But I think the gospel resources that Christians have should, in theory, have us very much in the game of, of pluralism, of engaging across difference. So we already talked about viewing others as image bearers of God. That's a great starting point when you're looking at somebody who you don't understand or you don't like to be reminded that this is an image bearer. We also are told and believe and know how this story ends. So when we when we face fear or anxiety or doubt, which all of us encounter, we have these tremendous claims 
from the gospel of where this is all headed and you know paul's point about the resurrection like you know pity me if if it's just for this life that we're hanging around and so i think that what 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 god does in jesus should allow his followers to be uh the most encouraged and the most joyful even in the midst of circumstances that seem in the present moment bleak and then the, the final thing i'll say is that christians are are called to treat other human beings in pretty particular ways. So in a lot of my work for general audiences, I talk about the need for tolerance. And I think tolerance is, is ultimately a pretty low political bar. It doesn't take a whole lot to tolerate somebody, but Christians aren't called to tolerance. They're called to love. They're called to love their neighbors. They're called to love their enemies and the people who hate them and reject them. And that, that ultimate ethic of love is really hard, but it's also really, good in terms of where it can call Christians to be. This is a, a tension that I certainly experienced, you know, growing up as a Christian and then going to a place like Washington University in St. Louis, which I loved, but some of the people in the rural town in which I grew up were scared for me, that it was a place I was going to go to lose my faith. And I, you know, I was kind of coming to, I, I came to WashU in 1995. It was sort of the height of the Christian subculture where I think a lot of Christians were recreating things that were going on in the world, but we were creating Christian versions of them. So churches yeah. were creating, you know, the Christian gym and coffee shops. So you didn't have to go to the secular one. There were Christian music festivals. So you didn't go to the one with drugs and alcohol. And there was this really kind of fear of of other ideas and i'm just I'm, I'm curious if you've reflected at all you know you talked about the ways in which the gospel seemed to push us towards uh an, an embracing or an, an embracing of other ideas but a, a willingness to be in that kind of context you know you often hear christians talk about being in the world but not of the world to, to live in that tension and yet for much of my childhood, there was this real fear of being around different ideas or people who believe different things and, and almost this uh, concern to keep us sequestered or keep us safe from different ideas. Yeah, there's, there's so much rich in that question. I'm trying to think of <laughs> where even to begin to answer it. Uh, you know, one thing that comes to mind is uh, I think the very best form of Christian engagement with the world is that which takes seriously uh, God's created order and God's presence in all of the world uh, in the disciplines and knowledge and art and beauty and, mm -hmm. and that we can, we have so much to learn as Christians from the world around us, including from those sources that aren't Christian. And when we try to baptize everything with a Christian gloss, we risk, I think, actually missing something of what creation actually is. And we remake things in our own image rather than in God's image. And so an example here, my, my friend and colleague, John Hendricks at Washington University, who's an artist and illustrator, talks about the importance of distinguishing art done or made by Christians from, from Christian art. Yeah. That art is art is the entire practice and beauty and infinite resources of the world of art that God has created. And then Christians can engage in that with excellence and beauty and motivated by the love of Christ. But it doesn't mean that you create something distinct called Christian art. Yeah. That's not, you know, the alternative to real art that just, that just goes 
uh, nowhere. And I think, I think that uh, Christians who are able to take seriously excellence and inquiry and knowledge from other areas of, of the world can, can be salt and light in those places without having to recreate them. And so when I think of a place like Washington University, uh, you know, WashU is never going to become a Christian university. uh, And that's okay, because there's a lot of really good work there, a lot of really good people there. Uh, And as a Christian, I want to be someone who is faithfully present in that world, doing my best work as a Christian who has some expertise and training in these other areas of knowledge and who's part of an institution that doesn't always, you know, believe what I believe and isn't always doing the things that I care about. Uh, but, but there are places within that institution where I can find common ground to engage. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And we could have a whole nother discussion on, you know, secular and sacred are not necessarily categories. The Bible, I mean, we have those categories, but that's not the way the Bible sees the world. Um, so I really have two more questions. I we could I could talk to you forever. I, I sort of I want to ask you about what it's like to to be a Christian professor at a university that is not Christian, uh, where you have to deal with a lot of different kinds of people. I remember you know the the my the experience of mine. I had a great experience at WashU. I I didn't necessarily feel you know devalued because I was a Christian and, until my. <laughs> My senior year, I went to the career center. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was a advanced, you know, a theoretical math major. And I went and I did the little tool that they had you do at the time. And I met with the counselor and I said, uh, you know, she said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm really thinking about going to seminary. And I think she said it reflexively. I, 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 she didn't mean it. But she said, uh, well, you know, that would be a real waste. and that story always sticks out to me um i but i had a great experience there even though it wasn't necessarily a a christian university but there were there were of course these these times when i noticed that i was different at least from what i perceived was the majority of the people there Uh, what's it been like for you to be a professor who's christian in the midst of a setting that's not always charitable towards faith yeah, you know, I mean, bottom line for me is I love Washington University, um, and I, I think it's you know most many of my colleagues see the world quite differently than I do, but they're you know by and large amazing people who are doing really good work, excellent teachers who care about why they're there and what they're doing, and it's it's just a great place to be. And my students who are often quite different from me challenge me and engage with me in really helpful ways. So I, overall, it's, it's an, an amazing experience. I don't ever feel, or rarely feel kind of marginalized by faith. I do, I, there is a lot of just kind of baseline ignorance of faith, right? I mean, you just can't assume any, anyone knows even the basics of what Christian belief is or why I would do certain things. So there's, there's a lot of translation work left to be done. And then I think interestingly for me, one of the, the most challenging areas really for my whole 10 years there has been to a lot of my non-Christian colleagues having to do the hard work to explain to them the difference between Christian and conservative, because they Mm -hmm. really only have one category. Uh, If you're not them, and if you're a Christian, then you must be a full-blown conservative. And I've always been politically independent. Um, I have some conservative beliefs, some liberal beliefs. I think politically, I'd be pretty hard to place on a map. Uh, But, but for many of my colleagues, they just don't have the category yeah. for someone who's not them and not the other side. And uh, and then similarly, I think a lot of uh, Christians I encounter, especially in some public spaces, cannot uh, 
get the idea that I would I would actually genuinely love a place like Washington University and still possibly be a Christian, right? Because, because uh, and so trying to negotiate and translate in both directions and say, no, really, I really am a Christian. <laughs> I really do believe this stuff. And part of that means I really don't believe a lot of what the WashU Kool-Aid says. And at the same time, I really am a WashU professor and I really do love that place. <laughs> and that place gives me a lot of vocabulary and useful critiques of other Christians as well. And I'm, I'm grateful for both. <laughs> yeah. Th- th- that resonates with, with my own experience. Uh, well, I want to just kind of end with a really practical question. You know, people listening to this might wonder, okay, at the, at the end of the day, you know, John, how do I deal with as a Christian? Um, how do I deal in, uh, with people that I just so deeply disagree with that, you know, we've experienced this politically, I think, you know, it, it, we're really, people seem to be really struggling because it seems to go beyond ideological, just ideas that are different. And, and I think people just want to know, are there any practical pieces of advice you have on how to deal with individuals we just deeply disagree with? Uh Yeah. You know, so we've actually, I think in our conversation today, we've, we've touched on some of those points. So I think very practically, uh, get off of social media, mm-hmm. at least give yourself significant breaks from it and remind yourself that much of the real world is not what you're experiencing on social media. Find people outside of your echo chambers to form relationships with, not to have conversations with, but to form relationships with. And then as Christians, remind yourself that even when you encounter people you don't like the first principle here is is those people are image bearers (laughs) and that means you're probably even the person who's the most annoying most grating uh person you probably have something to learn from that other image bearer and so look for that something to learn uh and this is this is all going to be extremely hard work none of this is a quick fix and but we've all got to start doing it uh, and then maybe the last thing I'll say that comes to mind is focus on the local because uh, we've got some pretty serious problems right now. I have no idea how to begin to solve some of the national problems, uh, but we've got a much better shot if we focus on the local and and commit to long-term relationships uh, with people who are going to encounter face-to-face. Yeah, that's a, that's a great word. Uh, before I let you go, you're involved in something called the Carver Project. I just want to lift it up because it's a, it's a place where people can actually intersect a little bit with the kind of work you do. It's a, it, it's a, a, a project that seeks to empower Christian faculty and students in university and church and in the world, but you offer some things to uh, people who aren't necessarily, you know, enrolled at school. Can you talk just a little bit about the Carver Project? And uh, and I'll tell people where they can learn more about that. That's great. Yeah, thanks, Matt. You know, so this is a ministry that some friends and colleagues and I started at Washington University about three or four years ago. And we really are trying to help bridge these divides between university, church, and society. So we focus internally quite a bit on ministry to and with faculty and students within our spheres of influence, but we also want to be a resource to other Christians, particularly pastors and ministry leaders. And so we offer some short courses online where we try to share our own expertise uh, for practical applications for pastors and ministry leaders. We have some public events, at least we're, we're not in a pandemic, where we, we try mm-hmm. to bring especially a lot of the local church community together uh, for 
discussions and speaker series that are again sort of rooted in our own faculty scholarly lenses but are translated out in a way that's going to be more invitational and uh, inviting to the broader community and so I think as we you know as we continue to develop this organization we would love to you know we're always looking to partner with particularly people who are, are committed to the church and are committed to the institution of the university and especially Washington University and and, and want both to thrive. Uh, so that's that's what we're working on. Yeah, thanks so much. And people can learn more about that at carverstl.org. And I will drop that link in the show notes so people can find it. Uh, but I encourage people to go check that out and to check out your work. John, I've kept you a long time, but that's because this conversation has been so not only interesting, but really useful, I think, to me as a person and as a Christian. And I'm really grateful for your work and for you taking the time to share about it this morning. Thank you. This has been great, Matt. Thanks for having me. I know I say this a lot, but I could have continued that conversation forever. I want to thank John so much for being with us. It's a great interview. Okay, so I talked too long. We're out of time. No mailbag today. But don't forget to connect with me on Facebook. That seems to be the easiest way. You can search Pastor Matt Miofsky. And not only do I put up this show as a podcast on that, uh, on that page, but it's also a great way to share a question with me. So please let me know your questions. You can message me there. You can find me there. You can also always email the F word at gatheringnow.org. That's the F word at gatheringnow.org. Uh, but the easiest way is just find Pastor Matt Miofsky on Facebook. I hope you all will connect with me there. Uh, it's been great to be with you and I will see you next week. Bye.